Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. The souls of the virtuous are in the hands of God. No torment shall ever touch them. They who trust in Him will understand the truth. Those who are faithful will live with Him in love. Wisdom chapter 3 verses 1 and 9 We don't often find readings from wisdom, so when one does pop up, it's always so refreshing and, well, wise. On first reading, I think of torment as the troubles I'm going through now, the ups and downs of life, and because they're touching me or affecting my life right as I speak, therefore I must be suffering. I must not be a virtuous soul. Then my eye drifts to verse 9, and I realize I trust in God and study hard to understand the truth. I read his word every day faithfully, so I do live with God in love. You see, God is supreme. He understands his world a whole lot better than I do. If only I would hand over my earthly torments, those worries and upsets that beset me continually, it seems, then I wouldn't be touched by them and let them affect the way I live. Not that I'm dismissing my earthly worries and torments as nothing. They're very real for me. But if I view them with God beside me, then they're much more manageable. I'm reading Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, and in it he says that no human being has the right to do any wrong, regardless of how he was treated, the torment he suffered at the hands of others. In his book, he was talking about prisoners who survived concentration camps and felt that they could pay the world back for what had happened to them. His words can be applied to all our lives. Take another look at the words of wisdom, because if no torment will touch us, then we will not find it within ourselves to retaliate. We'll be able to rise above what the world does to us and consider what God has done for us. The meaning of my life is about my relationship with God and His creation. Hello, welcome to the Sociable Homeschooler. My name is Vivian McNenny and I'm here to dispel the preconceived ideas many have about what educating our children at home looks like. For some, it's straightforward school. For me, it suited the maverick that lurked within when I decided I didn't want to miss anything my children were doing by handing them over to folk who were not their mother. So we mixed it up and shared our time between books and play. Either way I looked at it, it's all learning. Over the years, I've spoken to a wide range of homeschooling mothers and fathers, from the secular to the missionary, the academic to the child-led. For us, schooling becomes a suffix for home, boat, biking and the world. You name it, we can find educational opportunities anywhere. In my personal journey, I've used the tools God gave me to live my life fully. I have moved in and out of my comfort zones, children will do that for you, gaining insights and delights along the way, which I'm happy to share with you. With or without my children underfoot, my life is often ordinary, always busy and sometimes frustrating. But for me it starts and ends with God, the beauty of His creation, silence, 
a starry night, a rousing piece of music, or a simple hug. If you pop by, I'll offer you a cup of bog-standard tea and a frozen banana to balance the heat. But I understand if I don't see you, because you're on that side, and I'm here broadcasting from Turkey Creek in Florida. After the first break, my guest Dawn Franks will be here to talk to us about working with the philanthropic donor and non-profit community. She's the third in my short series on careers, and hers is a very interesting one. I'm all set, so grab whatever it is you're drinking, and let me engage you with the latest and greatest from the household of the McNinnies, where we're enjoying flying fish, alligators, kingfishers, sausages, and a career as a lawyer. Are you ready? My blue-eyed cowboy has taken to fishing in the mornings after journaling and devotions to get his mind settled before firing up his computer. He usually catches nothing, but that's okay. It's a form of meditation. He's joined by some interesting wildlife. The pileated woodpecker described in my Florida wildlife book as the infamous woodpecker that was the role model for the cartoon character Woody the Woodpecker is around. This bird is a formidable drilling machine known to peck so deep into smaller trees that the tree breaks in half. On our meanders around the neighborhood, we've seen trees with perfectly round holes in them. How do those birds do that? My blue-eyed cowboy and I listen in amazement as we hear the speed with which this lovely bird hammers against the tree. It almost gives us headaches just hearing it. I can't imagine how its neck and head can tolerate such a shaking. No worries, though. It came created with a special shock-absorbing head. Its drilling noise can carry for blocks on a still morning, and yes, we can hear him. The masts on some of our nearby sailing vessels could be mistaken for a very small tree, and a couple of times we've heard a rapid tat-tat-tat, and it sounds for all the world as if he's hit metal. I've talked about the hummingbird that visits the avocado tree outside my window, and there are lots of dove around. They coo all day long. My fisherman has also seen an alligator floating along the canal, as calm as calm can be. Not a welcome fishing companion. In fact, in the early hours the other morning, I heard what sounded like something really big getting into the water. It wasn't a human going for an early morning swim, not around here. It must have been an alligator who had come up onto the bank of our next-door neighbor's garden, looking for prey. Luckily, there's no one living there at the moment, but who'd want to stumble on one of those first thing in the morning? Needless to say, the dogs aren't allowed to wander freely, and luckily they're happy to stay close to the house, and they know to be waited to be leashed if we go any further. I was talking to Barbara Frank the other week about how difficult it is for us, particularly since we homeschool, to let our children go. We're so used to teaching and guiding them being their primary points of contact, and we form really close relationships, so much so that there are times when I'd rather be doing things with my children than with my friends, especially now the offspring are older and aren't so dependent. I have fun watching them interpret what they learned growing up and incorporating it into their lives. My older son, for example, has laid out his kitchen like mine, as far as possible in the given space. The cutlery drawer is next to the stove, the spices are above the oven, the plates near the sink, and I've told the story of the yeast in the fridge top shelf behind the milk on the left. My younger son hides money. I used to sock the odd bill away, and after several months I'd count it up and find we had enough to go on a short trip. Both my mater paternal grandparents hid money too, literally under the mattress and under the stair carpet. They hid it from each other. I think my son and I just hide it as a small way to save. 
Did you know saving money makes us feel good about ourselves? Well, it makes me feel good about myself anyway. All my children keep their places also clean and tidy. They don't need dishes in the sink and they always make their beds. At least that's the experience I've had whenever I visit their flats. Don't tell me. They know I'm coming so they do a quick whip around. And they all do love to cook. Something really valuable they've taken from the family home. When we left East Texas a couple of months ago, we spent our first Saturday morning in town with our wedded son. We were invited for breakfast. He was going to be making sausages. It wasn't until we arrived that we realized he didn't mean making as in cooking. He meant making as in from scratch with the sausage maker we'd bought him a couple of years ago. Our outdoorsy son was becoming more of the homestead of the older he got. For the sausages we were going to help him make, he had smoked some pork belly for five hours, and after a cup of coffee and good morning, we were drafted into service. Passing the smoked meat and pork shoulder through the grinder wasn't too bad the first time round. The next round included cheddar cheese, and the grinder and pusher became slippery in the hand, and getting the jalapenos through in the last go-round required a quick wash of some of the detachable parts. I did that. The peppers were fresh, according to our son, when he tried a piece and had to rinse his mouth out with milk. Then it was time to get the mixture into the casings, which were really pig intestines drafted into sausage service. He soaked them in water to get them supple, before rinsing them to remove the preservative salt. I was quite surprised at their durability. He then fed one length into a tube for the final pass-through of the sausage mixture into the casings. Very professionally, our son twisted up the links, and before long, he had a couple of dozen authentic-looking bangers. We were treated to samples of the sapatis before they were formed into links, and they were delicious. After almost three hours of fun visiting in the kitchen around our butcher's blog, we left enlightened on the culinary art of sausage-making. Our lovely morning had me reflecting on our son when he was a child. He was always keen to plant a garden. He's always loved the idea of being self-sufficient. He doesn't hunt, but he does grow vegetables and make beer, another parental gift on his 21st birthday. At least he has his priorities straight. He loved animals and brought home wild babies to nurse and release. So far, they've brought into their marriage two blue-winged macaws, Walter and Lemon, raised from hatchlings, a lovely rose-breasted cockatoo named Gill, and four chicks, two months old, that will run around the stage in their bird show once that gets on the road, and lay eggs for them as oft as chickens are wont to do when they're not performing. They have a heat lamp in the cage, and I noticed a floppy mop head doing duty as surrogate mum. He's been busy making cages for more new birds, an owl or two, and perhaps a red-tailed falcon, donated from a rehab centre. They've completed the first stage of filing for non-profit status and received notification that their application was successful. And with the ball rolling, they were all set for their education permits, which they got. And now they're jumping through hoops to meet the requirements for housing birds of prey, apparently essential players in any show or demonstration promoting conservation. So let's hope that the Wildlife and Fisheries Department approve my son's cages that he's just been making. And while their bird show is in these planning stages, yes, that's what all these birds are about, he and his wife are working at a restaurant 
Restaurant work is not the most exciting job in the world, but as with lots of aspiring entrepreneurs, you've got to do what you've got to do to bring home the bacon, or in this case, the sausages. Our son always finds interesting ways to turn this waiting experience to his advantage. He made beer for the Thai Vietnamese restaurant they were at for a year, and at his charcuterie, he's made friends with the chefs and takes home culinary ideas like chili rub on brisket and sausage making, of course. He hopes that they will one day be able to sell their eggs to the restaurant, since with the potential of one egg per chicken per day, he reckons he'll have a surplus. The two of them are all about enlightening the public about the importance of the natural world, and you can visit their site, windowtothewild.org, to discover more about what they're doing. And with that, it's time for me to go on my first break. But before you go and replenish your drink, let me introduce you to my guest this week, Dawn Franks, who's the third in my series of people to talk to us about her career as a philanthropist. I was first introduced to Dawn through my husband, who had a meeting with her while we were in East Texas about one of his projects. Dawn is president of Your Philanthropy, a coaching and consulting firm, and works with the philanthropic donor and non-profit community. She has 33 years of experience in non-profit and philanthropy work in the Tyler community. Dawn is married to Eddie Franks, and she'll be with us after my first break. So don't go far. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Mark Lipinski is coming to Toginet. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski, a live two-hour show Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Creative Mojo. It's fun, entertaining, informative, inspirational, and illuminating. Lipinski has worked on such shows as Oprah, The View, The Joan Rivers Show, and Ricky Lake. He's busy, but he's got the drive to share with Creative Mojo, dedicated to the modern crafter and crafting lifestyle. Dive into the info and enjoy everything from celebs to entertainment news to recipes, quilting and needlework. Knitting, painting, woodworking, Christmas crafts, and so much more. This show boldly encourages you to discover and harness your own creative spirit by living creatively every day. For more on Mark and the show, check out marklepinski.com. Don't miss the fun. It's Creative Mojo with Mark Lipinski. Wednesday afternoon starting at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, welcome, Dawn, to my show. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Look forward to visiting. Right, Dawn, first off, why don't you tell me and my listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, well, Vivian, I am. Uh, um, I live in East Texas. I have worked in the nonprofit community basically my entire adult career. Mm-hmm. I um, do not have children of my own, but I have helped to, to raise two stepchildren and am now at the point in my life where I have several young grandchildren. Oh, right. Okay. Um, you say that you are in the non or have worked all the time in the non-profit community. I'm just wondering, was this something that you grew up knowing that this is what you wanted to do? Is it something that perhaps your parents or a member of your family had done? How, how did this happen? 
No, not in any form or fashion. Uh And um, I I really did stumble into my career uh, because of a professor in one of my political science classes as an undergraduate Uh at the university I was attending at the time. Um, And literally, by stumble, I mean that that professor encouraged me to do some research for a paper that I was working on and to attend a meeting that was going on in the community where... Um, back in the late 70s where a group of women were trying to figure out how to provide um, rape counseling uh, services, uh, particularly a hotline um, for our community. And so I went to this meeting that was just discussing an idea, and one thing turned into another, and I got involved, and eventually I actually became one of I became their second executive director, but very early out of college mm-hmm. was doing that. And... Uh, and then just um, have been in, in doing nonprofit work ever since. So, as a child, what 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 is what was your upbringing like? And as a child, what was it that you wanted um, to do? Well, I was raised uh, an Air Force brat, so we lived okay. all kinds of places all over the world. Mm-hmm. And um, I was my family greatly believed in education and believed that I could do whatever it was I wanted to do, and so. Mm-hmm. As a child, I really, you know, like many kids, I wanted to do one thing one time and another thing another time. Eventually, I seriously began to think that I wanted to be an attorney. And by the time I was in college, that really was the direction that I was heading, was toward eventually going to law school. Mm -hmm. And what interrupted that decision was that right um, at the end of my my degree, I took a part-time job for the U.S. Attorney's Office, and that part-time job at right after college turned into a um, full-time legal assistant job, and I did that for one year, and it was during that year that I looked around and realized that I wasn't really sure I wanted to go get a law degree. Okay. Uh, so you, you said that while you were working uh, for that year as a legal assistant, you yeah. decided that you did not want to go to be an attorney and go on to law school. So did you stay in that same office? No. You know, actually what happened was during that very same year that I was looking around and trying to make that decision, um, I had also begun getting involved with this all-volunteer group that was trying to start, start this rape crisis hotline in the community. And I became very involved with them as they were starting and actually found myself during my year at the legal assistant office as the one person who was too young to know that I couldn't do what I was being asked to do. But when I say I couldn't do it, too young to know that I was supposed to be afraid to step out and do what I was doing, which Uh was to apply for nonprofit status because I had no clue what I was doing. But neither did any of the other adults in the group. Uh I was just, um, I was just willing to take a, a, you know, an application with lots of very small print, and read the read the directions and figure it out. I was there in the very beginning mm-hmm. as they were developing all their documents and, you know, just learning one step along the way with them how to do it, mm-hmm. but willing to step out and do do it. And and frankly, I didn't do it absolutely correctly the very first time. The IRS had to send it back, and I had to make a few corrections and send it back again. But yeah. it was okay because eventually we got what we needed. Yeah. And and from then on, you that's what you've done. Now, do you actually 
today still apply for non-profit status for people or tell, tell me exactly yeah. how, how yeah. that gets involved in your job that you do today. Yeah, so t- today really my job has morphed from the many, I, I actually spent um, 20 years in some form of direct service in the nonprofit community, um, running two different organizations. And then I went from that to an organization that was helping to make grants to mm-hmm. local nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And then that has gone to where I am at just very recently, which is that now I actually have a private consulting firm and I am out from under working as a nonprofit and now um, working for myself, not raising money, but actually billing for services that I might provide to individuals in the philanthropic community and helping them with their philanthropy. All right. So you said you got out from under nonprofits as if it was a a burden? I mean, is it difficult being a nonprofit? Are there lots of regulations? Well, there there are certainly many regulations, and it really wasn't um, out from under is probably not the best uh, phrase to use, but it it is very different to be a nonprofit organization from being a for-profit on your own. You don't have to meet some of the same requirements for the IRS that you have to do as a nonprofit. And you don't, when you're a nonprofit, you have to raise money to survive. Okay. So it's a very different way of life, very different life business style. It's very different business style. That'd be the best way to describe it. So I really had an opportunity to change from the side of the, um, the side of the river, basically, where I had to raise money to, for the organization I was with to survive and had to um, conform to the nonprofit expectations that the IRS would have. Mm-hmm. When I crossed that bridge and I, became, I got to the other side, which was working with the donors and helping them actually make grants or make um, large gifts to nonprofits, it's a completely different part of the business. The word philanthropist means? Yes. It actually means the love of men. Mankind. Philanthropy means mm-hmm. the love of mankind. Mm-hmm. And so philanthropist generally means somebody who loves mankind and who uses their resources to give. Okay. Many, you know, a hundred years ago, even 50 years ago, philanthropist meant um, somebody who had a great deal of resource and could give. For us today, that looking at it, we would say a philanthropist would be a Bill Gates. Um, Warren Buffett or, you know, somebody who has lots of resources and is able to give it back to their community or to causes or in things that they believe in. Um, so do you have to be really wealthy to be a philanthropist? Well, no. And so that's where I was going okay. is that many years ago, that really was the way that people defined the word. Okay. Today, the word has really become um, more... Um, more widely accepted to mean any individual who gives of their time or any of their resources, regardless of the level of resources. So you give um, you give what you can give, and that makes you a participant in the world of philanthropy. Okay. Okay. One of my questions was going to be, 
Are you a fundraiser? You were, right? I was. I am not now, but okay. I was. So yeah. what, what type of person do you have to be in order to be a fundraiser? I would not know even where to start. <laughs> um, well, to, first, to be, a, to be a fundraiser, you really need to have some passion for the cause that you're raising funds for. You, okay. you, know, you need to not only have a passion for for it, but understand it well enough to be able to explain it to others Mm -hmm. so that they can join you basically in your passion. Mm -hmm. Um, And fundraiser, someone who is, does fundraising for a profession is typically pretty outgoing, Mm -hmm. uh, is uh, typically really a people person, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, spends a lot of time in relationship with people so that they can understand whatever it is that um, other people are passionate about so they can figure out if there's a connection. Mm-hmm. Now, there is another group of individuals who do fundraising who we would consider grant writers. Okay. And grant writers are not as um, typically outgoing um, folks. They're much more likely to really enjoy sitting at a computer and writing Mm -hmm. and figuring out the best way to put um, that mission, that passion on paper Mm -hmm. so that other individuals can read it and be interested and fund the idea. So there's a couple of different kinds of things individuals can do in the nonprofit community that makes the organization, that helps the organization exist from one day to the next. So those are those two things, fundraising and grant writing. Yeah, and, and really we, we would consider grant writing a part of fundraising, but it's generally a very different personality type. So you almost can say there's two two different paths there to go. Okay. So I, I imagine the grants are taken from an already large pool of money that has been assigned to be used. Yeah, typically... Um, a, found, a private foundation has um, a certain amount of money okay. that they must give um, back to um, nonprofit organizations that qualify. Mm-hmm. And the, the IRS requires private foundations to give 5% of their assets a year back, okay. uh, no matter how much they have in the bank. And so you've got that kind of a pool and then sometimes the pool would be government funding because there are lots of government grants mm-hmm. and so the government has in its budget so much set aside for one cause or another you particularly see a lot of that in the health field mm-hmm. uh, some of it in community development around housing issues and uh, food issues and those sorts of things okay education there's a lot of funding um, government funding in the education um, arena as well all right. So I can see how the fundraising and the grant takes a different personality because on the grant side, it's more of a more of a justification of this is why we think that this particular yeah. nonprofit needs this money or could benefit this money. Yeah. Whereas a fundraiser is going to go out and do, I mean, you see these functions, you know, $10,000 yeah. plates and that kind of stuff. Yes. And you've got, and that fundraiser is out there is a personality. So the people are going to fall in love with the cause, really mm-hmm. like the person that's presenting the the project. So have a yeah. have a personal connection with that person and their passion. So it's, it's it is it is quite 
quite different, right? Yes, yes, very different. And they're not going to be drawing from that private foundation pool of money where they have to give 5% back. They could, but the grants are dealing, pooling from there, and you're probably getting a different set of money, a different set of people from your fundraising side? Yeah, because typically, um, you know, with, with, with private foundations, that funding has typically been set aside by somebody mm-hmm. who, had, who had assets. And so they may have family members or community members who sit on that board and make decisions. Mm-hmm. And they, they're going to have all kinds of personalities. Mm-hmm. Um, when, a, when a nonprofit raises money as well through events and they've got a fundraiser who makes contacts with individuals and does one-on-one fundraising, that sort of thing, um, that's a very different part of the work, and so the people who go to those fundraisers usually enjoy the the party, the fun, the experience. Mm-hmm. So you okay. get very different folks involved. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. That's interesting. So that's the nonprofit side where they, they're raising money. We've got to go on a break right now, just for a few okay. moments. When we come back, I want to talk about the other side that you've come into that isn't non-profits, it's for-profit. So we'll be back in just a moment with uh, Dawn Frank. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. I'm talking to Dawn Franks, and we're talking about philanthropy. She gave us a wonderful definition of a philanthropist in the last uh, segment, and we talked about nonprofit. And now we're going to be talking about for-profit because Dawn, that's that's the side that you're working on at the moment. So let's do do a little bit about tell us a little bit about for profit companies. Well, so um, the work that I had been doing most recently, well, basically for the last thirteen years, was working really closely with individuals who either had family foundations or had were making significant giving decisions, and so the nonprofit that I was in decided to let me spin that out into a, a private consulting firm, and so I am doing that um, privately now, mm-hmm. now, as opposed to under a nonprofit um, mm-hmm. umbrella. And so, um, in that in that scenario, I'm not fundraising from people who believe in my cause. 
I'm now charging for the services that I provide and I have to be able to really articulate the value add that anybody would receive when they hire me to do the work. So for instance, with, with, with um, family foundations, I actually help them with their grant making process. So a foundation that say gets upwards of 20 million or more in assets and is maybe giving 40 or 50 grants a, a year away, mm-hmm. um, it's, there's a lot of administrative work that goes into that. And so I contract with that foundation and help them do that work. They make the decisions. I just try to make it easier for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've got I've got somebody who's either going to college or has already has already been in college for a couple of years, and they would like to do something like you're doing. What kind of college degrees do they need? Do they need a college degree? What subjects would you suggest that they focus on? Okay, well, so I actually got a college degree in political science because I was thinking I was going to law school, but. Mm-hmm. As it turned out, that political science degree was actually very useful as it beca- as it related to my um, understanding how governments work so that I could then navigate the grant process that happens at the governmental level. Okay. Psychology, sociology, political science, um, you might even find it useful to have, um, particularly in the health fields, the health, the allied health. Um, kinds of services. Mm-hmm. Um, just it, it's about understanding people and the needs that people have and how to best serve people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as I said, there are a few places in the country that have begun to develop the nonprofit track. For instance, the um, in, um, University of Indiana has a school of philanthropy, one mm-hmm. of the first in the country. But and I think UT Austin has a school now um, that gets into the, the nonprofit things, but they're out there. In those, when those schools exist, they take a little bit of everything and bring it together because a well-rounded individual is better off than somebody who's not. And part of it depends really and truly on whether or not an individual wants to provide direct services or they are a little more inclined toward administrative um, responsibilities. So on the administrative side, it even helps to have some business classes. It mm-hmm. helps to understand accounting. Even if you're never going to do it, it helps to be able to read um, a balance sheet mm-hmm. even when you run a nonprofit mm-hmm. as opposed to a business. Once they're finished with college, um, a place where they would go or maybe during college, they would in turn, where, where would you suggest they maybe in turn yeah. to see if there's something they want to do? So internships are a great way, volunteering and interning are a great way to figure that piece out. And mm-hmm. so if somebody is in college, I would suggest that they look around for some nonprofits in their area that they that are doing work they're either interested in or want to learn more about. Okay. And that they either figure out how to be a volunteer there or they actually figure out how to get an, an internship through the university or their college there. Um, and what I would do is try out different ones throughout my college uh, career because they're very different. Um, national nonprofits are operate in, in some ways very differently than just local homegrown grassroots nonprofits do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some are really sophisticated and some aren't. 
but experiencing all of them, I think, helps uh, a young individual get a better feel for where they might like to be. Now, you say you're in East Texas. Is this where you were raised? Well, actually, yeah, I, um, I am in East Texas now, but my, um, my father was in the Air Force, and so I have um, lived in a number of different states as well as lived in Germany as a child. So, um, you know, all, not always here, but this was one of my family members' hometowns, and so this is where we landed later in life. But, uh it just happened happened to be here, and um, had I come, I probably wouldn't have chosen to come to come to Tyler because it's not a, a really large city, but it's been a great place to be. All right, so you don't have to go to a big city to find nonprofits. No, now it, it's sort of a um, uh, it, it, which which. Well, it's sort of a, it's six of one and half a dozen of another. If you're in a really big city, there are going to be many more nonprofits, so more opportunity if you are determined to work in a nonprofit field. If you're in a smaller city or community, there will be fewer of them. But on the other hand, you may have a better opportunity of knowing folks that are, you know, volunteering or working in those and can help you make connections into those nonprofits. So I wouldn't say that one is better than the other at all. So, Dawn, tell me, nonprofits. Why would somebody want to be nonprofit? Something to do with taxes, but is it a certain type of business that's a nonprofit, or can anything be a nonprofit? Um, typically, we we find that nonprofits organizations are engaged in the work of of helping people, changing lives creating new opportunities or making something different. Mm-hmm. And that's a very broad way of saying that. Um, but it, it t- for the most part, an organization will be a profit company if it's simply selling something and you're, you spend all your time trying to figure out how to sell more. But if you are in the, ser- in the, the business of delivering services that impact people's lives and change their lives, Okay. Then that's a very different way of going about business. Okay. That, that's a nonprofit. Okay. So, for example, you know, the iPhone did change people's lives. It changed how people did a lot of things. But yes. It wouldn't immediately jump into my head that they would be a nonprofit organization because that's they're right. selling because they're they're yes, out there selling. selling. But they did change how people did a lot of yeah. things. That's true. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point. Yeah. Goodwills are a good example of a nonprofit that operates like a business in many ways, but in the background, mm-hmm. Goodwill's mission is to provide edu- um, employment opportunities for individuals who would not typically be able to find work and mm-hmm. to tra- provide training and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So there's a mission in the background that changes and impacts people and, and makes their lives better, and that's the first mission. The business is just how they go about doing it. Okay. Okay. All right. In your career, have you had a highlight? Oh, my. Um, well, I, because I started so young, I had an opportunity to be involved in the creation of um, services for um, sexual assault and family violence and to build the first women's shelter in the community I live in. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I then had an opportunity to be involved in creating a children's advocacy center, and 
a nonprofit development center so that many nonprofits in the community could get more education. So it's very hard for me to say there's one highlight. If I put, if I boil them all up together, it's that I've had a chance over the, my long career to be in places where I could um, help to lead a group toward change that was really good for the community at the time. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. You said you started with a, a helpline, is that right? Yes, uh-huh. yes. Yeah. When we got started, it was just um, um, a crisis hotline, hotline and 30 volunteers. Yeah. yeah, and were you paid initially when you went into that? I always think of nonprofit. For some reason, people always think nonprofit. Well, they're all volunteers. <laughs> well, when we started that hotline, no, all those volunteers didn't get paid anything. Yeah. Eventually, we did hire staff, and I did then have a paying job. And very often, nonprofits do not pay as well as um, individuals might get paid for similar work in the profit world. In other words, a large nonprofit that needs an accountant to do their books, mm-hmm. that accountant probably won't get paid as much as a nonprofit in a Fortune 5 as a um, accountant in a Fortune 500 company. Mm-hmm. So, if, if money is a driving force, then business is where somebody needs to stay. Would you say that your career has been a good career for you? Oh, it's been a it's been a great career. Yeah. Um I, I would not trade it for anything um, else. Um, it has given me an opportunity to meet many people and um, not only not only work at the level of seeing people changed and impacted, helped, and lives improved, but also just to work with many um, individuals in the community who want to make that happen and help them make it happen. So. I, I absolutely love what I do and feel like I'm greatly blessed. And, and did it work well for a family? I know you said you didn't have your own children, but you raised some stepchildren. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I think uh, that any any job, nonprofit or business, can be difficult. Can be a challenge, you know, for family from time to time. I think you just have to find the the one that works the best mm-hmm. for you and, and whatever your family responsibilities are. So it sounds as though you were probably, as a child, well-organized, also liked justice because you wanted to be an attorney. So philanthropy side and getting into the nonprofit and the fundraising, what did you learn about yourself perhaps that you didn't know before you went into that? Um, I, I learned that uh, I could do many more things than I realized mm-hmm. that I could. Um, all all of my career, each step, each change I've made has stretched me in ways I didn't expect, um, simply because I often thought I knew what the work was before I got to the next thing, and I was often not quite accurate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, by sticking with it for a while, was able to learn a lot of new things. And so I've never reached a point where I thought I'm through learning. I've always been growing again because mm-hmm. I sort of because something new is starting. But that's my style. I always like to um, get um, ramped up on something new and go yeah. for it. Yeah. 
So what what did you learn about other people around you? Are are they team players? These other philanthropists or the people that you work with? Um, um for the most part, people in the nonprofit community, because they share a passion about something in particular, and because there's something they want to see changed or different, they're, they tend to be more likely to be uh, team-oriented. The reality is that the nonprofit world is very similar to the business world. There are all kinds of people in it, and some are better than others. Mm-hmm. Some work harder than others. You know, all those things. There's, in many ways, there are not differences there. Um, people come to work with different um, driving factors and motivations. So, mm-hmm. so generally, I've, I've, I've been in great situations working with wonderful people. I think that individuals who are on the, the philanthropy side of actually making grants and giving, um, sometimes they are team players, and sometimes they have something very specific they would like to see accomplished, and they're simply looking for the organization to help them get that thing accomplished, and they're not really a team player from that perspective, even though they may need a team to get Mm -hmm. it accomplished. Mm-hmm. But you've obviously worked out how to how to work with these people and bring the the best out in them. It sounds. Well, I, I hope. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, Dawn. Uh, we've come to the end of our time. It's just flown by. And um, I want you to tell us what what's your job title. I actually uh, am president of an organization called Your Philanthropy. Okay, and that's yours. That's mine. Yes, that is the private LLC. Okay. And how long have you been doing that for yourself? This uh, was just started this year in 2014. The philanthropy services generally that I was doing under the nonprofit I did for 13 years prior to this. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, Dawn, thank you so much for taking time out this afternoon to talk to me. You're very welcome. And I've been talking to Dawn Franks. She is a philanthropist. Uh, She has her own business and you really need to listen to the interview because I am not going to be able to wrap that up into a little nutshell as to what it is that she does because we covered so much in our conversation. But Dawn, you have a wonderful weekend and thank you once again for joining me. Right. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. 
Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's the Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. I was talking to Dawn Franks about her unusual and very entrepreneurial career. Dawn is president of Your Philanthropy, a coaching and consulting firm, and works with the philanthropy donor and nonprofit community. She has 33 years of experience in nonprofit and philanthropy work in the Tyler community. She's also executive director of the Ben and Matie Fish Foundation and serves on boards for the East Texas Communities Foundation, Leadership Tyler, Bullard Economic Development Council and the Tyler Chamber of Commerce. She is past president of South Tyler Rotary Club, a member of Tyler Executive Women's Network and a graduate of the University of Texas at Tyler. I know I learned some things about nonprofit, and I hope you did too. Go to her website linked on my Sociable Homeschooler site and my Tokenet page to find out more. Dawn said that philanthropy is not something young people starting out would necessarily identify as what they want to do with their lives. But she did point out that if you're an outgoing and a people person, then fundraising may be a good fit. On the other hand, if you're not so outgoing, you could be very successful at grant writing, which is another aspect of fundraising. If you or your child are not sure, Dawn suggests volunteering or interning at a local non-profit in your area. If you love mankind and want to use your gifts and talents to give back, then philanthropy may be the career for you. Today, you don't have to be hugely wealthy. You just have to be willing to tap into your resources to help others. And on the subject of helping others, I've talked with Mike Donnelly, staff attorney for HSLDA, about his career, and he is a great example of how he has used his talents to give back to the homeschooling community all over the world. If anyone in your family is an aspiring lawyer, then I suggest you listen to his show from March 11, 2011, called Future Advice. In it, he reveals some typical and some not-so-typical ideas about career directions, which I thought would be interesting as a follow-up to my conversation with Dawn this week. My opening question for Mike was, what did you want to be when you grew up? His answer was perhaps a little unexpected at first, but then, as a mother of two boys, once I caught my breath, I really wasn't that surprised. He was a boy in this life, and all boys want to be astronauts, don't they? And I thought, yep, you're right there. My oldest son wanted to be an astronaut when he was a boy. However, my other children all ended up being what they dreamed about in childhood. My younger son wanted to work with animals. Actually, it was more play with animals, climb trees, slosh around in muddy creek bottoms. Or he wanted to be Thomas the Tank Engine engine driver. My oldest girl displayed nurturing signs and a total acceptance of special needs people any age, not only children, when she was about five years old. My youngest girl wanted to dance from the moment she could walk. She had my point shoes on and was flitting around the house to warnings of she'll ruin her feet or break her ankles, she'll twist her knees, coming from ballet teachers at the school where she'd just started. Fortunately for her, all the naysayers fell on deaf ears, and she honed her skill of flying and leaping through the air with no regard for gravity. Today, all but one of my children is working in his childhood dream. Animal lover is a zookeeper, nurturer is an early childhood teacher with a special needs certification, and dancer is going to pursue a career on the stage. Even though my mother and Noel Coward would disapprove mightily with the warning, don't put your daughter on the stage, Mrs. Worthington. Google it. 
My oldest son, an astronaut wannabe, became a filmmaker. The idea of astronaut went by the wayside when he was about 11 and discovered a video camera. We're the ones to blame for that. Mike Donnelly turned his childhood dream of going into space into a degree in economics and then a career in the army before turning to law. He had sound advice for would-be lawyers, which I'll reiterate here. First off, consider how much money you have available before going to an expensive school just because it's prestigious. And I have to agree with this because really those Ivy Leagues charge you for the name like designer clothing and Bruno Marley shoes. And good educations and law degrees can be had from far less expensive colleges. We, the McNennies, learned this from the College of Santa Fe, a lovely small liberal arts college in New Mexico, which my oldest attended. He'd already earned his associate's degree in the arts at the local community college, a recommendation from Mike also, and when he went to a four-year school, he was able to transfer in as a junior and was awarded good scholarships for his high GPA. The school he went to had 750 students and gave my eldest a firm foundation in leadership and experience in film and editing, without leaving him with a boatload of debt at the end of the day. My youngest son, on the other hand, decided A&M was going to be his alma mater. Nothing would entice him to make another choice. Because so many people around America and the world have the same high regard for Aggieland and its college, they don't give much money away. They don't need to. People happily pay to attend and continue giving money for years after graduation, even leaving healthy endowments. A&M's purse strings remain firmly knotted. They took one look at my son, acknowledged his 4.0 GPA, checked out his complexion, his blonde hair, his candid blue eyes, his physique, his six foot three frame, his charming personality, and decided he wasn't in the least bit handicapped to succeed in the world. His associates of science degree allowed him to knock two years off his attendance at this southern redneck tumbleweed school, and he's also fortunate not to have saddled himself with a boatload of debt. However, he'll never have the earning power of his brother because, you know, zookeepers are in it for love, love of animals. But all that may change with their upcoming bird show business. Mike Donnelly cautioned that having a job as a student is frowned upon in law schools. Graduates have to focus on their studies, so he emphasized a need to find a way to support yourself. My sons didn't really have jobs at their schools either, just enough to pay for coffee and donuts. We always said, school is your job, and they took us at our word. Community colleges, as I've said, are assets. Mike solved his jobless status during the four-year stint at law school by marrying. It wasn't a marriage of convenience, and I'm not suggesting that, and neither is he. But he was 27 when he went back to school, so his wife was able to support him. Mike suggested a college called Oak Brook College of Law, which provides a two-year undergraduate program and prepares students to work in the state of California. Go to the website on my front page. I'll have it linked there or do what I do and just Google Oak Brook College. If law is an interest, but the academics and expenses are too much, Mike suggested training to be a paralegal. He also advised potential lawyers to beware the big bucks when looking for a job. These high salaries come at a high price, he says. He knows because he worked in a company where they expected him to work 70 to 80 hours a week to tra and travel. He said the money was good, but he didn't have any time to spend at home supporting his wife with the upbringing of their children. Then he found HSLDA, where they expect their lawyers to homeschool and spend time with their family. Boy, what a concept in this day and age. I have to admit, when my blue-eyed cowboy was working on the road, we never saw one another. It was sad. He missed lots of milestones in our children's lives. After a few years, he came home for good, and things did get better and better as we grew 
poorer and poorer in the eyes of man and richer and richer in the eyes of God. Believe me, with God's help we battle through each dry patch and the memories we've made are priceless. Plus, they're such independent individuals, nearly all working in their childhood dreams and all strong, steadfast and beacons for the future. And oops, here we go. It's the end of my show for yet another week. Cooking fish on the grill is the order of the evening meal, and we're going to do a couple of the nearby towns. There's a large lake at one of them that has some good walking and riding trails, so we've heard. So it's picnic time for the McNenny parents. We may or may not take the dogs. Depends. We'll have to look it up to see if they're dog-friendly. Thank you for listening to The Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny, and I'll be back same time, same place next week. Without further ado, I'll say thanks to my handsome husband, who believes in love at first sight, our four children, who are the result of that belief, the hard-working staff at Toginet Radio, my producer, Sabrina, my guest this week, Dawn Franks, and you, my faithful listeners, especially Hannah, Joel, Anne, Rosemary, Kathleen, Esme, Millicent, Margaret, Jacob, Walter, Jane, Olivia, Tina, and oodles of others who are part of my growing audience. Stay tuned all the time and catch lots of great shows here on Toginet to help you through your day. Take care and be safe. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toginat. The Sociable Homeschooler is Vivian's attempt to help dispel the stereotypical homeschool family. She and her husband have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who are willing guinea pigs for her foray into homeschooling, the Wildflower Academy, which flourished for 15 years. Vivian is here to be an encourager to all of you who are thinking of homeschooling. Plus, you'll have some great ideas on homework, vacations, keeping science projects in the house, and being popular versus popularity. So, we'll see you here next Friday for another engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNenny. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com.